happening now live. We want to welcome our viewers from the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room for October 5th, 2016. This is Wes Fryer proving that for once in my life, I can read a script and try to approximate the appropriate introduction for our wonderful show. This is episode 24. I'm joining from Oklahoma City. I am the Director of Technology at the Cassidy School here in Northwest Oklahoma City, joined as always by Jason Neifer, who took the show, uh, not on the road, but but uh, with a guest last, last week with, with Martin. How are you tonight, Jason? And how does it feel to have put 1,100 miles on your vehicle in the last week? Uh, it feels really well. I'm well tonight. Um, we First snow is dropping in the state of Montana. I drove through a, a mountain pass this afternoon on the way back from some site visits in southeastern Montana. And as you mentioned, in the last four days uh, with a colleague of mine at the Montana Digital Academy, where I am the assistant director and curriculum director, uh, we put 1,100 miles um, on a rental car um, for the last few days visiting sites. But I got to see some wonderful country and some really, really, really awesome professionals at some of Montana's smaller schools in particular um, and how they're using um, both uh, online learning in regards to my program, the, the, the state virtual school in Montana, but also how they're making ends meet with the resources they have available to them, which is one of the things I've always really loved about Montana teachers is they are a very resourceful bunch. So uh, it's been really great. So um, I'm looking forward to talking about um, our issues this week. Uh, there's a lot of interesting things going on in the tech world. And Wes, do you want to go to go ahead and get us started with an article? I will. Let me also, we've got a couple live viewers tonight, which is exciting, and point everyone over to our website, edtechsr.com, where you can click the links button at the top and uh, access all of the show notes that we're going to be discussing. There'll probably be, as always, a few that we don't get to, uh, but there's quite a bit of, about Google. I guess one of the ones I, I appreciate you uh, grabbing this, or, or maybe I did, I don't know, from, from past shows, but... Uh, We've just had our state educational technology conference the last two days here in Oklahoma City, and we had Shannon M. Miller from Van Meter, Iowa, and now Denver, Colorado. She's actually kind of living both places uh, as our keynote speaker, and, and it was just fantastic. One of the sessions today was um, by uh, Andre Dowdy, who is a great instructional coach and now full-time consultant, and he was talking about the election. It was a PBL session. You know, what a great opportunity for us to, you know, be be talking about relevant events with students. But uh, this article from Fast Company, which, which is actually about a month old now, it's from August, but it was saying that educators are afraid to teach civics. Uh, 43% of K-12 educators are, quote, hesitant to teach about the election, and more than half, quote, have seen an increase in uncivil political discourse in their schools, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center. So uh, it is really important that we find ways to talk about current issues and current events. Um, you think that's happening in Montana, Jason? Are you guys, uh, you guys aren't at all politically polarized up there, are you? Um, <laughs> nowhere is politically polarized in the United States West. So I know not what you're talking about. Uh, Montana is probably best described as a purple state. Um, we oftentimes, at least in the last 20 years, will often defer to Republican legislative majorities in our House and Senate. Um, and we do have a bicameral legislature here in Montana that meets every two years for 90 legislative days. And then statewide offices have generally gone towards Democrats and uh, uh, our uh, two senators and representative have been back and forth and have been leaning uh, Republican as of late. But so we're definitely a purple state would be the, the best way to describe us. And I, you know, as, as you know, Wes, I'm a former social studies teacher. I would be 
shocked if I felt that this election and the, the, the discourse issues and, and the significantly different patterns of, of both uh, voting and the types of candidates that are, are making uh, national news in this election, if I would shy away from that. But I certainly understand the world we live in where the discourse has gotten to a point where it's not productive to have in a classroom. And I do think it does take an exceptionally gifted teacher to kind of dance back and forth, to draw students out, to have opinions, also to uh, express those opinions in a positive, meaningful way um, to make that an educational uh, uh um, event for all. Um, I was teaching in a classroom in 2000 when the Bush-Gore controversy um, uh, uh, was uh, in, in definitely firing up. Um, I was in the classroom on September 11, 2001, and the subsequent um, um, uh, uh, military um, response to that post-9-11 uh, and dealing with those controversial issues is tough and it certainly is not bland and it's easy to step on toes, but I've been a firm believer in my entire teaching career that that's the kind of stuff that we need to be pushing into classrooms so that we can prepare students for the world of, of, of significant um, uh, elections and issues. And whether you are a Trump fan or a Clinton fan, uh, whether you hate Trump or hate Clinton or hate them both, the bottom line is we as a civil society have to be able to discuss these issues and then in November go to a ballot box and vote our conscience, vote our, our thoughts and feelings and desires so that we can then have a productive democracy. Remember, there are not a lot of presidential systems that have survived um, in the past 200 years. We are a unique system uh, with our legislature and our executive chief that is not a phenomenon that survived around the world. And one of the reasons why I think it's, it is the case is because we have a thriving and um, a very interactive democracy, not necessarily between you and the government, although I do think there's plenty of opportunity to interact there, but between you and others that are engaging in their constitutionally protected right to vote. So uh, that's a lot of ranty language there, but I do believe that then I've, I've read the article suggesting that it's been tough for schools. I have no doubt that that's the case. Um, you know, politics steps on toes and sometimes you can, uh, you know, uh, teachers feel confident to defend that. Sometimes they don't. But I guess if, if there's anyone listening tonight that was on the edge of whether or not they should be bringing this classroom, please do. Um, you know, you have, may have to develop some rules of engagement with your students, but there's no reason not to, um, I think, in, in 2016. Hey, I uh, actually managed to figure out how to get our live chat <laughs> up, you know, so I can look at it. And Dean Mance is joining us from Kansas. So uh, Dean says the election could be an amazing infographic for a government class wanting to take on the project. That That is true. I've actually been, been into infographics um, quite a bit more and I think we need to we need to push that for for visual literacy and digital literacy and I think we're probably going to spend the majority of our time tonight maybe talking about the um the Google event and and the the pixel and all this all these other exciting you know Google announcements but we've got a number of articles about the surveillance state and we did just put in a proposal for ISTE to talk about digital citizenship in the survival state or the survival maybe it is a survival state uh the, the survival estate in the surveillance state and <clears throat> we kind of got a challenge uh, from Martin who was the the guest last week to maybe have a show where we we talk about that but 
anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll get more into that, but a little, just a little teaser. But I, I went with the family and we saw Snowden this last week. And there's really important work for us to do in the realm of citizenship uh, around technology, around privacy, around surveillance, around a lot of different things. And let's also be clear that technology does enable you as a classroom teacher to bring in a lot of diverse voices that aren't necessarily even political voices, but I'm a fan of data journalism. I think that's becoming an important part of the journalism I consume as a a, a news and media consumer. Uh, Nate Silver's 538 website is an excellent data journalism site. The New York Times has an excellent election data journalism site. NPR has been working on doing election forecasts based on current polling and know that there are lots of ways that you can have students engage in this election without necessarily dragging in um, some kind of, of overwrought Clinton versus Trump uh, debate. Uh, rather, you can look at it from a number of different angles that probably has some connection to your content. The statistical analysis that happens uh, by the data journalist folks at the sites I just mentioned is an extraordinary way, I think, to engage in the election without getting too deep in um, the minutia of, of the day-to-day of politics, that that data is, is important information. So do that very much so. And data analytics uh, is is ginormous, right? It's yeah. just going to continue to be huge in terms of something that is affecting our lives, but it's also a career uh, opportunity, and it, it ties ties in with a lot of ways. And we, we need to be um, discussing these issues, but we also need to be looking at the ways in which you know, there, there are important analytical and digital literacy skills that students can cultivate and, and should be cultivating, not only to be savvy citizens, but also potentially to, um, you know, have jobs and, and be able to constructively create and shape the media environment and the information landscape, whether you do that professionally right. or you do that on a very amateur basis, as, as we are doing here tonight. So, Jason, you want to take us to the next article and maybe dive into Google or you want to go somewhere else first? Sure, let's let's throw the Google out here and see if, if this uh, uh, strikes a chord with either of us. And, it, and I, I'll, I'll give you a, a hint. It strikes a chord with me. So um, uh, there was a, a, an event yesterday. Um, I unfortunately did not get to see it live as I was um, um, off doing site visits. But um, Google announced several products yesterday as expected. Uh, I will say that there's been a number of articles in the past 24 hours from prominent tech journalists and blogs suggesting that that the important parts of this announcement were lost because of the leaks that have been uh, 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 popping all over the place in the last three weeks. And so a lot which was announced yesterday was not um, uh, uh, not that big of a surprise, minimizing maybe the impact of some of these products. And something that I wanted to look past a little bit, and part of this is because uh, I've been talking with folks had to Martin about uh, you know maybe missing some of the important parts of the Apple announcements a few weeks ago related to the new iPhone Seven, but there are some things that are happening in Google that I think are are going to make a big difference, particularly in the consumer cell phone market, and then secondarily, I think we're going to start to see some reverberations of this in classrooms, and I'll talk about that um, in very detail for a moment. So let's pick these apart one by one. Let's start with the most obvious one. Um, Google, since they've announced Android, have released what they called a Nexus phone. And a Nexus phone is a a reference model. Sometimes it's referred to as a reference model or a developer model. But the idea was, was that Google picked a prominent Android manufacturer, whether it was Motorola or Samsung or HTC or Huawei in China, and asked them to produce a phone based on specs 
that were um, uh, kind of tweaked by Google. And the, the phone would be released with a what's called a plain version of Android, which means the Android operating system had no modifications for the manufacturer of the device. And generally speaking, Android Nexus phones have been um, the uh, kind of a choice of phones for true Android nerds because you get the pure Android experience. And in fact, um, after owning a uh, Samsung Galaxy Note 2 and then an LG G3 phone this past year, uh, about a year after it was released, I picked up a, a great price on this is a Nexus 6 phone. It was the model introduced in 2000, around this time in 2014. Um, it's, uh, this phone was not as popular as other Nexus models. And part of the reason why is that it's absolutely massive. It is a six inch phone straight up, which means that this is definitely a, uh, you know, a, a more of a, a niche device as opposed to a, a wide appeal device. Uh, it, Google announced that the Nexus brand uh, is, is, is no longer the brand they will release phones under. And instead, they made two big announcements. First, future phones will be called Pixel phones. The Pixel brand name has been used twice by Google thus far. There was a Chromebook Pixel, which was a super high-end Chromebook released. There have been two editions, the, the Pixel 1 and the Pixel 2. Uh, right now, there are no Pixel Chromebooks actively being sold by Google. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And then last year, there was a, a tablet um, uh for sale by Google called the Pixel C. It was kind of a hybrid between a laptop and a uh, tablet that had this uh, uh, you know natural Google experience. And now Google's releasing two phones, a Pixel and a Pixel XL, a five-inch phone and a 5.5-inch phone. And you know, high-end specs all around, uh, you know, beautiful high-resolution screens. Uh, these are produced by HTC, which is uh, 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 the third or fourth place Android manufacturer around the world. And uh, there's a number of differences between this phone and previous Nexus phones. And the one that I'm already dealing with is the fact that Nexus phones used to be able uh, to be bought at a relatively uh, bargain price because they wanted to get them in the hands of developers to develop these phones. The Pixel phones are a, a, a marked departure from that. These phones will be expensive. Uh, there's a 32 gig and 128 gig model not unlike uh, the direction the iPhone has gone into, small and large available. And I priced one out yesterday, including their high-end insurance policy, and it was close to $1,000 to pick up that phone, which means that now they are on, on par with the high-end uh, Samsung phones and also the iPhones. Uh, but the big difference between this and the Nexus phones is that Google designed the phone from scratch. HTC is the manufacturer, but designed the phone from scratch. And they're going to integrate into the operating system um, things that only are for the Nexus phone, as opposed to leaving, uh, you know, all options available to all manufacturers. The, the Probably the most prominent one is a voice assistant, which is, I think, going to be a, a, a pretty huge deal. But they've released these, these two phones out into the wild. Um, they're a... a Initially there, I think Verizon is the launch partner. I'm pretty sure they'll be available in other carriers in the United States soon. I'm a Verizon customer, so I'm okay with that. I'm probably not in for one at this particular point in time because the $1,000 price tag is a very stiff um, for a lowly public servant. But um, I do think that um, 
it, it's a it's a, a, a great departure from uh, what they've done in the past. So, Wes, I know you're an iPhone uh, user, and you, from a phone and mobile standpoint, have been pretty steeped in the iOS universe. Is there anything about the Google announcement that is is interesting or tempting to you? Absolutely. I appreciate, as as always, each week, uh, the encouragement to check out some other articles. And you know, some sometimes I've I've been here not being able to review some of the things that you've put in, but uh, the Verge article series that you put in was just really phenomenal. And among that, I found this uh, Google's Pixel phone event in 10 minutes video. And so I'll uh, give a shout out to that if anybody wants to, to check that out. Again, we've got someone else. Uh, Peggy George is with us and we have a third a third viewer and you can go to edtechsr.com slash links and uh, take a look at these links. Uh, the first thing that stood out to, to me from it was their statement that we are moving from a mobile first to an AI first era. And we have talked about artificial intelligence and the importance of artificial intelligence technology improvements from Google, from Apple, from Amazon. Um, you know, Microsoft is in that fray. Certainly the United States government is in that. And so I thought that was really significant Right. Um, because we've kind of reached a plateau as we have in PCs and laptops in terms of processing power and, and what people need. Uh, and similarly, it seems like in smartphones, it's like, well, what is, what's going to, what's going to be next? You know, are you really going to need that, that additional, um, bump in <clears throat> processing speed and camera capability. And I think this differentiator of the artificial intelligence, but again, this will also get to what we'll, we'll talk about with the surveillance state and what's creepy or what's cool, right? And what's that line for you in terms of how much information you're comfortable giving away and okay. how much do you enjoy the fact that, you know, Google, you know, not only knows things about your, um, you know, commute and how long you, you need to, how long it's going to take you to get to work and when you need to leave to get to the airport or whatever. But right. there's a lot of other sides to that. The other thing that stood out was this statement that it fully charges for a seven hour charge in 15 minutes. Right. So that's pretty remarkable. And just overall, I mean, as we talk about articles, we bring it back to the classroom and the school focus. Oh my gosh, it just continues to reinforce to me how important it is that we find ways to equip students to use phones appropriately in school and that we right. don't simply cast them to the side and say, you know what, we're, we're just old school because that is not, that is not good enough. It, I mean, there's a lot of things about traditional education that are, that are positive. And there's a lot of negatives about the distractions that cell phones bring and that media content brings, but, Holy cow, you know, being able to filter well the onslaught of, of email and information overall and, and to make right. good choices with our devices, digital citizenship, it's just so important. So as I hear these announcements from Google and, and see the, the envelope push even further with, you know, the iPhone 7 announcement, whether, whether that was last week or the week before, you know, and then this from Google, uh, just, you know, increased impetus to say, what are we doing for digital citizenship and how are we you know, not only utilizing these tools to bring content into the classroom, but finding ways to help students, you know, be equipped to make good choices with what they publish and they share because we're all publishers now. Right. Well, and I have to say that um, that if uh, you kind of see the, the Pixel phone as being, um, you know, the competitor to the iPhone, um, and, and if other manufacturers are unable to, uh, to, to really catch the Google phone, I don't know what'll happen. This could just be what the Nexus phones were, which was the, the mostly the purview of, of nerds and advanced users. 
Um, or it could be the gauntlet thrown down by, by Google to say, this is the Android phone we want people to buy. It's interesting that in the same week that Google announces a phone that's really a, 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 a competitor to uh, the iPhone in a way perhaps most Android phones have not been, Samsung continues to fluster over the battery explosion situation with the Galaxy Note 7. There's an article today that I only read the headline in the first paragraph, but apparently a replacement Galaxy Note 7 today forced a Southwest airline flight to land early because it started smoking, which is just terrifying that the replacement phones um, are also in that situation. Of course, we're talking about a very small minority of these devices, but it's a the fortunate situation that uh, there's clearly uh, an issue with that 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 device, and it's probably not fair to you know, not buy any Samsung phone at this point, but it's definitely going to impact sales. So it could be that we're down to really just two competitive phones. There's the Pixel phones and there's the iPhone, and they throw down, um, and both are. Uh, in my mind, both are wonderful pieces of hardware that have extraordinary software. In fact, the Walt Mossberg article that we linked to in this week's show notes talks about why uh, Google developing a phone and the developing software around the phone borrows from the Apple model, which is why the iPhone has been such a, a stable and, and wonderful platform. It's because they're developing the hardware and software together. So you could see some extraordinary things happening in the near future related to that. So uh, certainly something to keep uh, look out uh, look out for as these phones start to roll out to consumers. I'll say something else about the Pixel, and then I want to talk a little bit maybe about <clears throat> the Wi-Fi announcement, which personally yes. at our home is the thing I'm most interested in. Um, you know, the, there was a great show called The Chrome Show before GigaOM exploded, and it's it's been resurrected, but all the, the people that were originally there left. And Kevin C. Toffel, who, who actually listened to one of our shows, we'll give him another shout-out today, um, had, a, had a great show that he co-hosted called The Chrome Show. And that really is where my knowledge of the Pixel laptop came from because uh, Kevin was an owner of the Pixel, very high-end, very different from what we've seen for other Chromebooks. Uh, I think it's really interesting to see Google continuing to iterate, you know, in, in this space. And they're taking big bets with this, right? This isn't just a small little, hey, let's try this and see what happens. I mean, I'm sure they've done all kinds of market analysis. Uh, today at our uh, state ed tech conference, <clears throat> I didn't get to stay for the whole thing, but there was a, a breakout session for ed, for instructional coaches or ed tech coaches. And it was just, you know, kicked out uh, for people to talk about iPads and Chromebooks and what were they doing and and, uh, you know, it's, it is, it is so radically different. The, in, the, uh, experience of supporting Chrome and the Chrome OS in a, uh, shared environment, in a school environment, you know, relative to the iPad. I, I mean, I love my iPhone and I love my iPad. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm very enthusiastic about the, the great kinds of content that can be created and the ways that it's different and, but, it's uh it, it's pretty pretty exciting to see these things continuing to move forward and just looking at the the Dell Chromebooks which we actually purchased uh, four carts of this summer and the ways in which they're being utilized and they're reliable and they're hardy and um and they're so easy to manage um, but of course that's sort of in school as we as we know it so. Um, do you want me to say a few things about the Wi-Fi, or do you want to? Yeah, yeah go, go ahead, and I, I have some information about this related to my own Wi-Fi uh, kerfuffles in the world. But, yeah, go ahead and give it a shot. 
Good. Well, uh, those of you that have uh, tuned in before on, on early shows will remember that uh, quality of service in, in our house. And, and some of this was when our son was still there. He's, he's off to college now. But everyone off of Netflix, you know, because I'm pretty sure maybe we could tune this down. But I think we pay for like at least three simultaneous Netflix streams. I mean, and sometimes our family would do that. And, and on our cable modem, <clears throat> we're on the third of four possible tiers. We have about 120 megs of downstream bandwidth, which is, which is quite a bit, but we still run into issues. Uh, I think it was, was Jason that alerted me to the Google router and, and Wi-Fi hotspot that is manageable through the phone. And they have announced a new set of Wi-Fi routers, which also can come in a set of three. And I hadn't even heard, heard of this before. There's the, I guess, Eero Wi-Fi, if that's how you pronounce yep. it. It's E-E-R-O. Yep. And as a tech director now, okay, so I've, I've been a tech director now for a little over a year, um, you know, managing our firewall and, and uh, our Wi-Fi and being in our dashboard. I have been, you know, longing for some more robust tools at home to be able to do even simple things like saying, hey, we're going, I'm going to do a video conference here. I want to prioritize this particular connection. And, you know, if, if there's other bandwidth left over for the kids to stream YouTube or Netflix or whatever, you know, they can do that. But anyway, I'm really excited about consumer level routers and and Wi-Fi hotspots and and then also the parental controls part of that because on I think I don't know if the Eero has this but on Google's they said you you can pause the internet or you can have access times for kids and really it's it's been unfortunate there've been a couple of startups or you know sort of um GoFundMe's sort of things where people are trying to do a um a parent a parental control you know router that that allows for um some more visibility. I mean, some of this, we're, we're on the edge of upgrading our firewall. Uh, we're down to either Meraki or Smoothwall. Uh, Smoothwall has amazing reporting features uh, that we're going to be working to get it integrated with our Google apps, you know, from a, from a user standpoint as far as where folks went and things that they did. And anyway, it's, it's great to see, you know, home users potentially having much more robust tools than just basically a, a dumb router and a Wi-Fi hotspot that is, is not very manageable and doesn't give you many choices in terms of if you want to prioritize something or, or uh, you know, just being a smarter device that's going to work in your home as far as walls and when you move around and things like that. Well, and I can say that uh, I was excited about this, and I was actually uh, on the verge of pressing. They, they, it wasn't available by the time I got to the Google Store, so this was a put myself on a sign-up list. But I was about ready to press that button, and we're talking about $300 for a three-pack of these individual devices. I found out that my current Google OnHub router, which I purchased a few months ago um, at a steep discount from uh, Amazon Prime Day, um, actually will work with this system. So I can just buy one of those new mini routers, plug it in, you know, probably on the other side of my house and then create that mesh network that, that is happening there. And it's very exciting for me because, I mean, I, I've always, you know, kind of, I, I wouldn't say you dismissed claims of, you know, my Wi-Fi doesn't work in my house, but I just have never had that experience. So I've never understood what that looked like. And I'm now on my third router in, 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 in a year and a half in my new home. There's something in this house that eats Wi-Fi signals. And I've tried a lot of, I've done a lot of research on it. And nothing seems to be working, but we did set up a second router at one point that was actually set, or what's actually uh, presenting to users as a second Wi-Fi network and that worked out pretty well but if I can create a mesh network that would be super awesome so I'm very much looking forward to that and I think anything that is plug and play easy 
but still maintain security and does the things that Google is famous for, like updating devices. I think it's going to be a real winner, and I hope that consumers uh, latch on to that particular product. Anything else from the Google announcements that you thought was significant? Yeah, I would say there's a couple other things. Uh, there is a wide, or I'm sorry, VR headset that will go on sale next month for $79. It's called the Google Daydream View VR headset. Um, I'm not, I have not looked at the whole keynote yet, so I'm not able to, like, I didn't see the demos or anything, but from the early reporting that I've seen is that it's, it's based somewhat on the Google Cardboard, uh, uh, standard, which is that they're gonna, they're gonna build things into Android, uh, and iOS phones that allow things like YouTube videos to be easily utilized, but it looks like it's a comfortable headset that does kind of strap around your head, as many of the successful Google, uh, Carver alternatives do to allow that VR experience. And they are giving one away with Pixel Phone purchases in at least this initial uh, play out. We talked about VR a lot before. I do think that this could be an, a very impressive uh, uh, classroom tool. It's just hardware-wise not there yet. And um, even the software, in my humble opinion, is still a little wonky. I do know a lot of, of Google Apps professional development trainers. I'm thinking of in Montana, uh, we have a, a firm here called Beyond the Chalk, um, Jeff Cruz and Dean Phillips that do a lot of really great things with uh, Google. They're big on cardboard, and listening to them talk actually gives me a lot of encouragement. This tool has a lot of classroom application. Um, I wish I were in a classroom to test that out, but they spend a lot of time helping folks create things that can be viewed in cardboard, which is, a, I think, a, certainly a powerful model. But um, that, I think, could go somewhere. I don't know yet whether or not that's super great or not, uh, but it, it's certainly that notion of an under $100 VR headset that utilizes mostly the power of your phone, I think, is, is a very, 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 very powerful model. And they also announced Google Home, which is like a Alexa tool with fancier speakers and again, this will touch on surveillance state stuff and how much you want to, um, how much you want to disclose and what you're comfortable with. I am not sure. And we talk about, I mean, I, I hope I'm not a person who's just always chasing after whatever is new and shiny. I think I have actually decided not to get an Apple Watch and to go traditional, traditional, uh, watch, uh, for my, my watch upgrade, uh, later this year. But I, I don't know that I want a smart home. Um, you know, the hackability of that and, and the listening factor. I spent mm, 45 minutes or so today going through because of a, a, a good note to self podcast about this ProPublica campaign called the black box to try and help people see what right. Facebook knows about you and then taking some control over that. Um, you know, I deleted a whole bunch of stuff off of my Facebook profile and Putting one of these Google Home devices or Alexa, you know, or your iPhone, if you have, you know, the microphone enabled for Google or Facebook or for other kinds of things, I don't know exactly what apps Apple is listening to us through. I mean, being it, can you take that stuff away? I mean, even when I was deleting things on my Facebook profile tonight, I'm like, okay, so it's not going to show up my profile, but Facebook knows, right? Like I at one time clicked that I liked, you know, I don't know, there's all kinds of different things and you're you're feeding the machine as far as what, what they know about you. And so, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about that. But anyway, I, are you going to go, what are you going to do, Jason? Do you have an Alexa and are you going to get a Google um, home and, and then be able to tell Google verbally all your life secrets? Right. Uh, well, as you know, Wes, uh, I have an interest in this particular topic uh, uh, from a research standpoint. Um, it's, 
Also something that I have avoided the Alexa, despite hearing from, from trusted friends that this is a positive and, and, and a, a, a well thought out platform. I've avoided the Alexa partly because I don't really have any interest in becoming too steeped in the kind of sub Android universe as part of Amazon. Not that I don't use Amazon because the, I think the, the, you could see that the UPS guy actually pausing by my house every day because he would expect a package to show up from Amazon almost every other day. But, uh, the, uh, it felt like that I was getting too involved in a subset of Android apps when I wanted to stay mostly with the Google store. Well, this home came along and I, I, I've already, I've already pulled the trigger. Uh, it's, it's back ordered a few weeks. I expected to be here probably before the end of October. I think it's a brilliant play on the part of Google. And I think that it's going to really make a big difference to have one of the two major platforms, either Google or iOS, uh, have access to applications. And you can imagine not unlike the Alexa platform, which talks to a number of applications and services, that Google's going to jump on that, um, uh, appropriate that idea from the Amazon universe, and do really amazing things with this technology. And I, I want to, I want to witness this. I think that that the number of of, of accounts I have that that are all uh, uh, synced to to this device um, are are are. Big deals to me, and if I can access them via an open voice, I think I'll be here. And in fact, I, I believe so strongly in it that I did pitch this to my wife. I knew that, it, and one of the reasons why, and I said it as a joke, but it's also kind of true that the reason why I got hadn't, hadn't uh, bought an election at this point was I valued my marriage. And um, the bottom line is, is that that's you know I could see that being super annoying. Um, but the Google thing is going to have access, I think, to a lot of application-based data. It's going to have conduits, I think, to databases and um, uh, 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 other pieces of information personally that's going to make it a really useful device, and I'm super excited about it. I think this is going to be a, an A number one product. We are living in a incredible time of transition with this stuff, right? And when you look at a Star Trek episode or movie or, or other kinds of science fiction, uh, even that Corning Glass ad that came out a while back as far as the future, you know, with the home and all of these things, uh, there are, th- if, if this podcast gets preserved somehow and people, you know, listen to it years from now uh i mean there's stuff there's a lot of things that are going to be absolutely taken for granted i think in the near in you know in 10 to 20 years that right now for instance having a device that you just speak to and so these 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 um channels these devices are not they're not here yet in terms of um it hasn't become normalized, but the, the creativity and the imagination of people to do things. And of course, it also is corporate and people are going to harvest information and there's that whole side of it too. But it's, it is going to be amazing to see what kinds of things are developed for this and they're, they're created. So, um, it's going to be exciting to hear you report on that, Jason, perhaps by Christmas. I yes. will say probably we will do, you're, you're, you're on the Google, uh, router Wi-Fi as well. Um, we may, we may do that too. We've got the, did the investment in the, time capsule uh, as far as the Apple, you know, wireless and, and um, anyway, we'll probably still do that as far as backups, but we'll see. Um, it, it, that'll, that'll be interesting. And, and how this will, will impact schools. I mean, you know, we're, we're continuing to look at our, our refresh and, and when we're going to be updating uh, Meraki, which is owned by Cisco now is, is our, our wireless um, uh, network and our wired network and, you know, higher access, higher, higher density access points, you know, the need for kids to be bringing more devices, you know, our bandwidth going up. It's a, it's a continual challenge, um, you know, in the home as well as at school to 
how we're going to meet the appetites and the consumption diets of teachers and students with media and with all of the content that can flow over these pipes that are sure. physically wired and, and absolutely so i do want to say real quick that you, you dropped an oh by the way maybe new max coming october 27th we're going to possibly be refreshing uh max uh well we were we will be refreshing some max at our school this year and, and next so that's exciting and what i hope is that they'll have a security port on more than just the pro version because that was something we discovered recently is that neither in the macbook um which i'm, I'm using for my uh my side um uh, back channel here, uh, you know, USB port, but no USB-C port, but, but, and headphone jack, but no, um, you know, security port. And even the MacBook Airs have not had a security port. And that, that's been a big deal for our teachers to need to be able to lock, lock them down. So. Right. And, you know, I will say that the exciting part about a potential back announcement for me is that I was left a bit disappointed by the iPhone event this month because I'm, or, because I'm not, or actually last month because I'm not an iPhone user. Um, it's not, uh, and, and it, again, nothing against it. It's just not my current platform. So I, I was unlikely to update to the, the seven or the seven plus, but, um, I am a MacBook user and I am an iPad user and all those platforms in my life are dated. They're not, they're, they're not necessarily mandatory replacement cycles. I'd have to be tempted quite a bit, but I'm excited to see where the MacBook is going. And there's all the indications, all the third party reverberations about, um, the Mac, the, the Mac itself suggests that there's probably a new form factor coming, and I'm excited about it. I think it's a really, really, really exciting time, um, and I'm hoping that the good folks at Apple, um, you know, don't disappoint and provide us some interesting fodder for uh, that that platform. That said, um, let's be honest about something. The MacBook Air. Um, there's plenty of things that are dated about it, but remember, they were the flat, thin laptop before, you know, years before Dell or HP or Lenovo um, made their way into that space. So you could certainly argue that it's time to go the next step, but they've been in this business a long time now. So, um, you know, they, they are certainly, in my mind, still very much the market leader at the super thin or super portable laptop. And this isn't on our list, but it is Mac-related, so I'll, I'll toss it in. Uh, Jason had mentioned a few shows ago that Keynote on the Mac had not been updated in a long time, and, you know, PowerPoint had, had kind of superseded it. Well, today was the first time that I have used this feature, and maybe it is an iOS 10 feature in Keynote, where we had an iPad plugged into the HDMI projector, and then on my phone, I had Keynote running, and I had paired those with Bluetooth, and so I was able to remotely run my, my Keynote, and there was also a Keynote Live feature, so that people could go to a web browser and be able to see that live if you, wow. you know, wanted to send that, so... Yay, right. Apple, you know, updating Keynote and not just letting it letting it languish. And uh, I need to dive into that more. But that, this is the first time because I've needed to do that uh, before. And I've tried to use a remote app and things didn't pair and it just didn't work. And so anyway, it worked pretty, pretty wonderfully today. The only weird quirk was we embedded movies into the Keynote. And sometimes when we tapped them, they would jump out to the web and jump over to Safari. And we had to do a few things. But overall, we're, we're pretty pretty pleased with that. So where do you want to go next? Let's see. Uh, lots of interesting things in the news this week. Um, 
let's talk about let's talk about Twitter for a second because I I I have a sense of and part of it's because I've been involved in Twitter in context of the election quite a bit. Uh, I like to read Twitter during, for example, the presidential vice presidential debates. But um, two things that, that that struck my eye in the last two weeks related to Twitter. First, uh, Twitter does have a model now for it, what they're calling expanded view tweets, which allow you to exceed the 140 character limit. Um, on on some tweets, I don't. I, I necessarily can't, um, you know, wrap my brain around that. Like you can certainly go past the, the the character amount and then be able to have people click something to expand that. I've not seen a lot of tweets from from users that I would follow regularly to do that. Um, and, and obviously, that's dealing with one of the great limitations of, of Twitter is that the the character limit does add efficiency to the process. But one of the things that I found frustrating is that. Um, I, I, I edu- education chats have, have taken over uh, 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 Twitter. It's a, a really critical part, I think, of this as a professional development tool. But what I found is that it's a really easy to agree with someone on Twitter. It's very hard to disagree with someone about Twitter and not come off as kind of a jerk because um, you know, disagreements, polite disagreements, are nuanced oftentimes. And it's not a you're right, I'm wrong. It's a you know, maybe we should reconsider this issue from these points, which is, uh, a, you know, the, the, a pleasant and, and also eloquent way of doing that. Whereas in Twitter, it's basically like, you're wrong and, uh, calling it good. And I found that, that it's really easy, uh, you know, especially in Twitter chats with teachers. If you're agreeing with everyone, it's awesome. Like, yep, you're right. Here's a small example of that. But when you want to have a detailed discussion and, uh, and maybe disagree, uh, but be, you know, uh, not disagreeable, then you have to, you know, it requires a more delicate balance than that. So I think that particular feature is is a good one. Hopefully they're going to get better with the threading. You know, that's yeah. that's what we need is to be able to see context and, and see several things. And, and Twitter has gotten better about that, but it also depends upon how you reply, whether you're replying to that tweet in terms of whether it groups them or not. Um, I'm just reminded of how important limits and constraints are. And from a school standpoint, like, you know, we've been doing it for years with haikus and other things, you know, asking students to, to be creative inside a box. Um, you know, I don't know. I, I'd love to know how many classrooms in America, are, you know, are using Twitter. Have a, have a, or how many teachers? Somebody's got to have done this study, right? Maybe you're going to do the research for this, Jason. Um, you know, how, how many teachers in in America are using Twitter for themselves? That's a, a growing number, obviously, but probably a much smaller number using it for the classroom. And I'm not saying you necessarily have the kids directly posting to Twitter. Uh, but but being able to you know share information within a a confined amount is um, I, I would be really upset if Twitter just did away with it you know so I, I guess they're trying to iterate uh, overall I'm I wish they could just be successful as as the company they are and not have to you know all all the stuff about you know fundraising and and then Wall Street expectations and I, I don't know it's just Twitter Twitter is absolutely one of the most important communication platforms in my daily existence to imagine a world without Twitter today, it, it would, it would be a, it would be a significant impact. And I'm sure I'm guilty. I'm definitely, I can be an oversharer. Maybe I'm an oversharer all the time. Um, I don't know. It would, it would be a it's when they talk about tweaking some of the basics of what makes Twitter, Twitter, which is like you have 140 characters to, you know, share thoughts. Uh, we're talking about, 
you know, some sort of some scary stuff. So right. I hope that, that that's not going to change dramatically. But, right. um, you know, well, we, we I don't... Want... go ahead. Uh, well, I want to mention one other thing related to that. I think that that part of the reason why I keep thinking about these changes is because I don't think you would change the basics unless you perceive that something wasn't going right, whether it's the uh, adoption of the platform or the use of the platform or average daily or monthly users. But there's been a persistent rumor for, for most of 2016, the Twitter's for sale. And apparently Google and Microsoft and Yahoo and, and all the usual suspects have, have been approached and have turned um, Twitter down uh, as a, a potential sale. I do think that there, that in fact, the, the, the place I know where it happens to work best is with teachers. I think teachers share a, a, a lot of informal professional development in context of Twitter. But, you know, it can't exist as a teacher-only professional development network. That's part of the reason why Ning went away, um, which is another discussion altogether, right? But, um, but you know, that's a, um, you know, that, that's a real problem, I think, with the context of, of this tool. And so I'm very heartened that, that well, for example, I watched the presidential la- debate last week via Twitter. I wasn't expecting to do that, but it's literally the easiest way to go from zero to live stream of debate. Um, there have been NFL football games uh, that are are, are, are are Twitter video. It could become that kind of dial tone of the Internet that uh, I've heard commentators talk about before, where it's just the go-to place to find and interchange with stuff. And, and Wes, other than this, this podcast, I mean, that, this is the, the way you and I connect. I mean, we see each other an average of once every three years at this point. And, uh, you know, like this is the way we connect uh, and, and even plan around the show, for example. And I, it, it's not right for email. None of this stuff feels right for email. I would never just say, here's some random links for you, Wes. Um, you know, that wouldn't be a way to do that. Twitter's the perfect platform. So yeah. um, I hope they figure out a way to, you know, to get to the audience they need to do. But, you know, if you need any evidence of the power of the platform, ignoring teachers for a second, you know, go, try debate night, right? Sunday night, town hall debate, Clinton versus Trump could be a big deal. You go to Twitter, it will explode, right? And politicos and students and teachers and debate coaches. These are all examples of, of people that I connected with on Twitter uh, on both Pfizer presidential debate night and presidential debate night. And that's a powerful platform that can allow that to occur. I'm a big fan of Clay Shirky, and I'm reminded of, of just, you know, his book, Here Comes Everybody, but just the power of social media. And I don't know if I heard him say this or someone else. I mean, there are reasons why these tools are blocked in, in countries like China and Bahrain and Pakistan or Iran. And, and so it... Thankfully, we still are differentiated in the world in the United States by many of the freedoms that we enjoy, and it is really important that we exercise those freedoms, and uh, there's, there's a whole lot of positive to that. So I wanted, I wanted to get a little bit to some of our surveillance state articles. I know we're not going to be talking about 10 of them, uh, but we haven't done this in a, in a while, Jason. You're going to need a Geek of the Week, by the way, so you might, you might toss that in here before uh, – before, uh, we get to the end of the show, but we've been done sort of like an oblique factor. I don't know. We don't, we don't have a good name. So um, uh, Dean and, and Peggy help us come up with uh, what, what this is. Cause this is just like sort of a non ed tech news fact. That's kind of fun or, or a different, uh, a different story. Uh, and then these don't necessarily have themes. They've just been kind of random, but you know, I've, I've observed and that I'm not doing this project now for school, but <clears throat> 
at in UConn where I was previously, we did just some short teacher interviews, and um, you know some of what we asked people was about their A side, sort of their their professional. How'd you you know come into teaching, and and what do you love about teaching? But some of that also was the B side, like what's something most people don't know about you, you know that, that's kind of interesting. So um, uh, I w- w- this is a technology related thing, but. Uh, if we think about the oldest tech devices that we have in our house, uh, I still have a Mac SE 30 <laughs> in our garage that I will not part with. I mean, I know it'll still boot up and I think I've still got an ADB keyboard and mouse, you know, that would run that sucker. Oh my gosh, what a great little machine. My wife would love me to throw away a ton of stuff that we've got. <laughs> Some old, you know, co- colored purple, a grape colored Mac that we've got, I think under the stairs and, you know, I, I don't know if I, I entertain these visions of someday having a museum. I've got a first-generation iPod. You know, show the kids. Look, kids, it was a spinning hard drive. Look at that. No solid-state technology. And this was the click wheel. I'll show that to my grandkids. That's probably why I'm going to keep it. All right, so what's your, your off the off the, uh, the links page fact for tonight, Jason? Well, um, I'm planning a trip, I think, to Europe. So um, I, I think I mentioned in an earlier podcast that I, because of, of my um, uh, uh, health issues last summer, which sounds vague, I had a kidney transplant last summer, long story discussed in an earlier edition of the podcast, um, I was for a year prevented from traveling overseas because I was looking for evidence of rejection and on some pretty serious anti-rejection meds. Well, I'm still on those meds, but it's managed now, and I'm healthy and alive, and I have a nice pink hue um, in my skin, so it's time to leave the country again. And my wife and I both love to travel, and so we're looking at a number of potential trips, but we may spend uh, Christmas in Eastern Europe this year. We may go to Cuba as soon as Alaska Air uh, starts a daily flight to that out of Los Angeles, and we may also go to Sweden, where um, a uh, teenager named Albin um, lives, where he will be a foreign exchange student that lives with us um, in Missoula, Montana next year. So um, we're excited to be travel planning. And there's just nothing more hopeful and delightful than travel planning. So we Mm -hmm. spent several hours on Saturday literally checking prices and looking at what we could buy with airline miles and what would cost otherwise. And uh, travel planning is just so wonderful and charming. So, uh, yes, so travel soup. In our day of immediacy and everything else, yeah, the, the pleasure that can be derived not only from the trip itself, but from all of the anticipation and planning that, you know, goes into it. Definitely, definitely a big deal. All right, well, we need to talk at least briefly about some of, pardon me, these these articles about the surveillance state. Um, first thing I want to point out is, and I'd love uh, any any feedback or thoughts that any viewers have, uh, for this session, because hopefully this will be accepted. We've put in for ISTE, uh, our International Technology Association Conference, at the end of June, a session called Digital Citizenship in Our Surveillance State. And um, there's there there have been a, a, a host of different articles that we've talked about. Uh, for the description, less than 50 words, the revelations of Edward Snowden about mass surveillance continue to inform discussions about privacy, cybersecurity, counterterrorism, and digital ethics. How can these topics fit into discussions about digital citizenship in the classroom. Join Jason Neifer and Wes Fryer to take the red pill and delve into these issues for those of you that are Matrix fans. So you can take a look at that, and, uh, you know, it could be something that ends up being a panel. Um, I honestly haven't seen a tremendous amount about that in digital citizenship when it comes to surveillance state. There definitely is stuff as far as privacy. Um, but uh, I want to give a shout-out to this ProPublica uh, 
really series of articles called Breaking the Black Box, What Facebook Knows About You. They've created a free Google Chrome extension that you can put on. Um, really, I didn't find it that helpful. It just kind of said, you probably like this because you liked this page. Uh, but I did get into some of the other privacy settings. Um, and so anyway, it's... It's pretty, it, it can be eye-opening. And when you think about Facebook, I think not that long ago, I was just, I put all of my past jobs and years in thinking, oh, I need to have my resume here. And I really don't. I mean, I've got my resume on my own website where if somebody wants to look at that, they can look at that. But huh, when you when you consider, well, number one, um, there's the whole, the whole marketing side of this, right? Is that companies are wanting to get this information so they can, you know, give targeted ads. And maybe at some point that's nice because, yeah, I am interested in, you know, buying a new Wi-Fi router or something. Uh, but on the other hand, it can be irritating uh, if you happen to click a link and you're like, why am I always seeing ads for this, you know, that are going to follow me around. The other thing that it assumes, and, and I want to give a huge shout out to the Snowden movie, because um, the, 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 our two girls and, and Shelly and I went and saw that a couple days ago. Uh, really important movie. Now, it actually is rated R. And when we saw that, I mean, this we've not ever taken our youngest to see that. There was a part that we were covering her eyes. Uh, it, the F word is used about 20 times in the boot camp scenes. And I think that's that's a part of it. But uh, this this movie and, and understanding what Snowden revealed and... Um, I think I can say this with, with good confidence now, the, the public service that he did to our nation. Um, I was listening to a podcast today uh, called by a, an author who wrote, has written a book called Forever War. I mean, we're in a situation uh, since 9-11 where we've really been in, we've been at war uh, and it hasn't stopped and it doesn't appear to be stopping. And so the things that have been done in the name of national security and fighting terrorism uh, have been sobering to this point, but the guy who who wrote this Forever War book, he pre he went on the record to predict, and I think this was at the time we were still having primaries, that there will be a terrorism attack in the United States prior to the election, and he thinks that would be the number one thing that would boost Trump into the White House. I, I really hope he's not prescient about that, but it is very scary to see the kinds of things the public will choose to do when fear is is ruling and controlling. And so, anyway, the Snowden movie is is really a great thing to be to to go see and to talk about. It connected dots for my wife specifically, who she hadn't really understood, you know, what Snowden did and his role, and, and she's heard about him. But I've, I I think there's probably a lot of people out there that that might not connect those dots. So, um, what do you think, Jason? Is, am I out to lunch? Is this is this not this isn't important at all in the realm of citizenship? No, I think it is. And, and one of the reasons why that I was excited by, by this, this pitch of a topic, Wes, for, for ISTE is that I do think that, um, you know, it's not to bring your hands in panic, but rather to have a whole sense of what you're getting into when you utilize technology or when you make decisions on behalf of your students to utilize technology. I think you need to be aware of, of this situation. And, um, you know, I, 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 and myself, uh, very comfortable with putting my personal information in the cloud. I, uh, you know, have been using a Gmail account since nearly day one of the service. I have a lot of information stored in there that I, mean, I don't know how embarrassing it would be, but you know, knowing that I swear like a sailor when I talk to my wife online and stuff that 
uh, you know, that that's a, that's something that, that I guess could be kind of weird, but you know, the bottom line is, is that I, I have a lot of trust in that, but I also know that, that there are implications to that and that I have to be careful and that financial, political, um, personal, uh, decisions, um, are very much a, a, a part of what I have to keep in mind when I'm, I'm thinking about these pieces. And I have not seen the Stone movie yet. I am looking forward to it. Uh, it's something that's definitely on my must-see list, and I prefer to see it in the theater. Um, but it's it's an important conversation to have. And, you know, and I don't think it's the in the same way that I don't think it's right to ban your way out of potential risks for tech, it's also not appropriate to either avoid the conversation or avoid using technology uh, but rather being just cognizant of the situation and understanding, um, you know, what that means for you and your students is an important part of being a tech-savvy teacher in 2016. Absolutely, yep, and he and you are the tech-savvy teacher. I wrote a, a post on my blog recently here uh, called Tips for uh, Basically uh, Critical Thinking and, and Digital um, uh well, I, I call it digital literacy tips, strategies for online fact checking, you know, and a shout out to Neil Postman and his idea of a crap detector and just how important it is that we teach critical thinking. I mean, this is huge and gigantic. Whatever your affiliations uh, politically, whatever country you're in, uh, wherever you happen to live, you know, as an educator, seeing the educational process is far more than the delivery of content, but the cultivation of, of a mind and capacity to be able to think independently and to not completely cave into authority. And yes, it's been said on high and that, that means it's, it's true. I mean, we all can probably swap stories of, of how important it is to not believe everything we read online. And we've had some security incidents at our school here recently, which I won't, uh, uh, reveal in, in detail, but they were, you know, some some targeted phishing attacks um, where, you know, we've got folks that are trying to trick us and they're trying to trick us for different reasons. Sometimes it's to try to win our vote. Sometimes it's to try to steal our identity. Sometimes it's to try to hijack our computer. Sometimes it's to try to gain access to the network that we're in. And um, it's just going to become more and more important that we have savvy users that can make good choices because this week at, at our school, for instance, it highlights again where that the end user, you know, can oftentimes be the weakest link. You can have a variety of different defense mechanisms in place with your your firewall and your policy and your antivirus and all of this kind of stuff but you know when, when an email gets through or this could also be a tweet that somebody clicks on you know there can be some really huge consequences in terms of ransomware and and you know computers being hijacked that um you know i, I don't know that we put this in there but a couple maybe we did a couple weeks ago the fbi Head said, "Put a put a piece of tape over your webcam, right? Did we include yeah. that one in the show notes? Yeah. So, <laughs> pretty crazy world. And I'll tell you, I like I've never believed in that paranoia. And sure enough, I was staying at a at a hotel um in, on my trip this week, a national uh, brand, uh, prominent brand hotel, very nice. I would go back there in a second. It was great." But there was a camera on the television. I don't know why. Didn't know what it was there for. A little tiny one on top. And I don't know if they, they had some kind of enhanced computer service or something. It looked like a little, like a, like a little webcam. Stuck a towel on top of there. Like I just, I, yeah. I'd never seen anything like that before. And I couldn't really figure out what it was doing there. So I was like, you know what I'm going to do? Bloop. And then call the good. So yeah. Yep. All right. Well, let's do uh, Geeks of the Week. You want to? Well, let me do mine, and then I'll uh, let you take it, take us out. So, sure. I, I uh, was very inspired by Shannon M. Miller 
yesterday as the opening keynote for our uh, Oklahoma Tech Conference, and she shared a host of of issue of uh, of apps and resources. Her main focus was was student voice and how important it is to empower our students and share their voices. But I just loved these apps for musical composition that she shared. One is called Music Quest, and the other is called Sketch a Song. Sketch a Song is actually older. Um, I was uh, a kid who, whenever we went to the mall back in the day, you know, was amazed by there'd always be a guy, it seems like, at the organ store, you know, and it, he probably wasn't really that talented because he had some kind of rhythm beat going and was maybe just doing one hand, but I was, I always loved that and, uh, am not that instrumentally music, not that, um, experienced or gifted in terms of instrumental music. I did more, you know, choir stuff, but it is really cool. And it is, it is neat to think about. We're doing a steam studio this year, uh, after school on Tuesdays. And, um, you know, as you think about bringing the arts into STEM and, and the ways in which, you know, artistic creativity, you know, can go hand in hand with science and, and with uh, design and things like that. Uh, these are cool and they're free apps. And so uh, my challenge to you, Jason, is to download one of them and, and create something. And I'm, I'm going to, to do the same thing. So check them out. They're both free and they're both by the same company that is based out of Denver, Colorado, uh, that is called Edify Technology, and uh, it's bring in compose in color is the tagline of the the sketches song. So just pretty fun stuff. Awesome. Well, my geek of the week is that I want to share a tip that that I've given for a couple people in the last six months that that I've gotten great feedback to say this is wonderful. Um, uh, chances are you're viewing um, or you're I'm sorry you're engaging in computing on a laptop and on a desktop machine. Um, the, the more nerdy of you are probably going back and forth from both, but laptops are obviously a, a primary um, uh, desktop platform now on uh, the way people engage. And one of the things that I always tell uh, uh, laptop purchasers is that you want to think about how to be as mobile as possible. And uh, one of the ways to do that is to have multiple chargers for your laptop, having one at home, having one in your bag, having one at work, a means that you can just pull your laptop in and out and get it charged very quickly without having to worry about plugging a cord in unless you happen to be remote where uh, you're not in, in your home space. And there are a ton of generic third-party chargers available. Um, they are oftentimes very low quality. They sometimes provide um, a, a way too high or low voltage uh, to a laptop and can, can, can literally blow a motherboard or explode a battery. Um, and as we know, exploding batteries are starting to become a big issue in our world as, as, as airplanes ban cell phones from certain manufacturers. And what I've taken to doing and I've advised other people to do to much success is consider purchasing a used OEM or original equipment manufacturer version of your charger from something like eBay. Now, let's be clear, there's plenty of, 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 of mismarked things on eBay, and you may not be getting an OEM charger. But as an example of this, lately I've been using um, uh, used Lenovo laptops. Um, I like them as great uh, platforms. I can buy cheaply from um, um, refurbished uh, uh, off-lease uh, sellers, what's been really great about that is that they come with a charger, but I can go to eBay and buy two or three more. And because I have a couple of Lenovo laptops I do use um, on a daily basis, I was able to pick up six 
used Lenovo laptop chargers for $20. They were uh, original equipment uh, 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 from a, a refurbisher. And, you know, I now have multiple laptop chargers. So consider buying original equipment used when you buy an extra charger or two for your new laptop as opposed to utilizing um, a third-party off-brand version, which can be very problematic um, in, in, in charging your laptop. Very good. Well, uh, well, we'll share where you can find us online, and then we'll wrap up because we've uh, gone just a, a little bit over. Uh, usually, we're here on Wednesday nights, and you can uh, follow us on Twitter at EdTechSR. You can also check out all of our archives, which we have published as downloadable 32-kilobit MP3 audio-only versions, as well as 360p slightly compressed uh, YouTube versions or video versions from, from YouTube. And uh, you can find all of that at EdTechSR. We do have a uh, survey that we would love to have you fill out to let us know a little bit about where you are. And this was fun to have the, the chat room live. Thanks to Peggy George for, for staying with us for uh, our entire show. And we had uh, Dean Mance up in Kansas. And uh, I think I saw in the chat room uh, Brett Dickerson from here in Oklahoma City. So anyway, it's uh, it's fun to, to know who's listening. We, we are getting some pretty good download statistics on on the audio podcast, but uh, you can find me on Twitter at WFryer. My blog is speedofcreativity.org. And uh, Jason, why don't you take us out and tell us where folks can find you? Excellent. Um, I am probably uh, most easily found on Twitter. Tech Savvy Teach is my moniker there. Um, I do blog regularly with the Northwest Council Northwest Council for Computer Education Tech Savvy Teacher Blog at blog.ncc.org, where I do serve as NCC's Tech Savvy Administrator in Residence. And, of course, um, you can find us here once a week uh, talking about educational technology news. Have a great night. Um, greetings from Montana and Oklahoma, and we hope to see you next week on the EdTech Situation Room.